Hello and welcome to another episode of Confessions of a Wee Timorous Bushy. This is your host, Minion, also known as Rob. In this episode, I'll be talking about the new campaign that I've started, the Barrow Maze for Old School Essentials. Of course, it wasn't originally for Old School Essentials, which is a reiteration of BXD&D from 1981. Uh, I believe it was for um, another game, and the name escapes me at this time. Uh, Labyrinth Lord, there you go. So that's the new campaign I've got to go in uh, cooking online for the Wednesday night D&D club on, uh, well, Wednesday nights, twice a month. The second thing that I really focus on today, if focus can, is the correct word, is in response to a call in from Jason of Nerds RPG Variety Cast, where he says he'd like to hear a little bit more about what I make of the little brown books, that is the original D&D rules, plus supplements, and Swords and Wizardry complete. So I'm going to start discussing that point, or I'm going to start looking at that relationship, the relationship of those games, um, as well as AD&D, I should add. That's something else Jason was of uh, was curious about. Now, Jason obviously knows these games, uh, and this is only my take on it. So... I'm going to do that, and uh, of course, I expect you to to call in and um, give me your views on the subject as well, and if necessary, prop me in the right direction. Here we go. Wednesday night D and D club. So um, last night, as I mentioned in the previous episode, we ran our first session of. Barrow Maze using old school essentials, that basic expert D&D retro clone. And uh, it went very well, uh, in my estimation at least, which is of some import since I'm the one running the bloody game. Oh, excuse me. Uh, so how did it go? What did we do? There are seven players in the game. Um, seven players online, I should add. And what this means is that if we don't watch out, we're all going to be talking over one another. And that's what I was referring to previously when I mentioned that it could all be, well, you know, um, a storm, uh, a bit of turn very chaotic if we weren't careful. And in fact, it was really, really enjoyable. And we we got started. Most people are online uh, just before or on time. And we spent... Probably the first 30 or 40, well, 40 minutes, I imagine, um, discussing expectations, uh, introducing ourselves and our characters and the game being an old school game of, um, and I having, I, I, um, I have already underlined that player mortality could be you know, uh, quite high, the characters had fairly, you know, uh, limited or simple backgrounds, at least at this point. Some of them, though, however, quite interesting. So you'll be very, um, I'm quite curious about how they'll develop, um, should they, should they develop. That is, it should the characters survive. And what did we do? Well, um, the adventure begins in the village of Helix, which is on the western edges of a civilization. 
and the setting is that it's there's this um, moor, a kind of waterlogged, boggy moor, that is trapped between uh, the river, which flows into it from the west, from the more civilized lands, and uh, surrounding mountains and forest. And so this river kind of like spreads out into the moor, uh, permeating it, um, impregnating the, the, the peat there, and finally uh, flowing out in the southwest. So that's the, the, the very, a very basic geography of the area. You have this moor anyway, and on the moor there are various barrows, hence the name Barrow Maze. And the basic idea is very simple. Um, these barrows house well, old, old you know, burial chambers and so forth, and there's treasures inside them, but there's obviously some kind of... Uh, some kind of force at work, something that's not quite right, because the dead rise again, and this brings season after season of adventurers to the town. Some of them become quite wealthy, others are never heard of again. And uh, the the adventurers, the party um, of players that I have, and there's seven of them, oh, I, if I didn't already mention that, are one such uh, young group of adventurers that have gathered in the uh, early months of spring to be first into the barrow maze and, and try to see if they can find any barrows that haven't been already looted. So it is a very simple uh, setup, for, as you can see. There's a lot more going on actually behind the scenes, but whether the characters really learn about these things or not, um, comes down to, well, comes down to time, I suppose, in some ways, and also, you know, uh, curiosity. How deep do they want to delve into the lore of that realm? It's by no means really necessary to enjoy the game. Um, generally speaking, the adversaries in this game uh, tend to be undead, uh, and the undead are se seem to be driven by some kind of, like, uh, evil force or spirit within the land. Uh, it's unclear. Uh, um, I mean, there, it's unclear at this stage anyway. Um, and whether it will change or not, we'll see. But uh, I'm I'm happy I, I'm happy with such a a simple setup, um, and the reasons for that are also quite simple. Uh, I the the framing of the Wednesday night D&D club is, is that, as I mentioned to somebody on Twitter recently, I want to be able to set up a space where people can just play a role-playing game that involves exploration, some thrills, um, a little bit of you know combat and uh, adventure, perhaps even some heroism, who knows. And I want to do it in a way where people don't feel that they they have to turn up to a session, that they, they don't have to have lots of things prepped. They don't need lots of background. If they're busy at work, they don't even have to turn up for the session um, because I'm going to try and keep each session quite self-contained. And that sort of brings me on to 
the other reason, or the main reason, I suppose, why I, I wanted to set up this little group, which is that, you know, the week is long, people have lots of stress, and I don't want to add to it by setting up a complicated game. But I do think that there's something to be said about having a, a game where you can just sort of drop in. Um, and we already know roughly the kind of the players who are involved in the game because it's already set. And the people are, you know, decent people. They're They're friendly and from... If uh, yesterday's session is anything to go by, they made every effort to allow each other the time to speak um, and to be heard, and and uh, yeah, it, it. I think that's a nice thing to be able to drop into that, just like you would back in the day at school with a D and D club. You just you've got. You've got various things going on in the week, and then maybe once a week you drop into that game. And more often than not, you know, maybe the players swap out, maybe people change characters. Um, maybe the DM drops the adventure and starts a completely new one. The continuity isn't always, or wasn't always in those days, um, a major factor, uh, at least as a teen, pre-teen, I would have been a pre-teen playing at school. More important than anything really for us was that we could sit down and roll those dice and uh, sort of grin at each other as we explored these magnificent worlds that, you know, didn't exist beyond our own imaginations. And that that's really part of the energy that I want to tap into more than anything. Yes. Uh, uh, a very simple form of role playing, but you know who knows. Um, there's already signs that some people's characters could be quite interesting. You know, a little bit off, uh, out of the unusual. Um, another thing I liked about um, character generation was that we we rolled stats uh, in the old old way, which was we roll in in order of the stats. And 3d6 down the line. So you have a bunch of stats. And unless they're really, really bad, like I'm talking, minus ones, minus twos for several stats, you know, for a net total of, you know, a, a negative um, modifiers for your ability scores, then people just keep the character. And then they say, well, what do I want to play? And in many cases, in... BX Dungeons and Dragons, at least, there's not that there's not really uh, that many restrictions on what you can be. So you can be um, a wizard with nine intelligence and sixteen constitution. There's nothing there stopping you, and there's nothing really to. Uh, there's no limitations on the spells that you can learn, either, which is really a nice point. Um, it affects your, you know, the number of language you can, languages you can speak. But there's that there's that nice little um, element about the simplicity of the system that works in the favor of uh, people creating characters that aren't that are suboptimal. They're not suboptimal, rather, <laughs> because there's no optimization. 
because there is no optimization, um, you just yeah uh, more often than not, um, yeah you can just pick a, a character. We've got one. We've got two clerics in fact in the party, which is you know another example. With uh, is a good thing in this case because of the number of undead. We have um, two clerics. Just before I go on, <laughs> two clerics. Um, one of them has a reasonable um, wisdom, which is the why reason why they chose to be a cleric, and they get the the. Uh, XP bonus, which is really the only thing you do get out of having a high prerequisite, except for perhaps some modifiers to to various uh, um, um, functions, or if that's the right word, values such as hit points or armor class or damage output. So he he's got that kind of cleric, you know, um, with a a decent uh, wisdom. Another cleric, the other cleric, has um, slightly weaker stats in many respects. And a quite more or less average wisdom, their highest stat is um, is charisma. And we we did actually discuss during character creation because all the stats were pretty much like flat except charisma, and the player in question said, "No, I'm I'm going to play this character," and well, fair enough. And we I've mentioned to people, and hopefully they'll I'll continue to mention. And they'll listen to my suggestions that, you know, charisma is a really powerful stat. It's not a dump stat, uh, even though none of the base character classes in in old school essentials use it. But what it does do is that it allows you to have a number of of uh, direct henchmen or hirelings, people that you can employ to to fight for you or do things for you, you know, take risks for you. And it can boost their loyalty rating. Uh, also, it, you know, good charisma can increase your reaction, uh, or that is the reaction of, the reaction of other parties to you and the party that you represent. So it's a really good skill, um, for negotiating and for, um, talking down, uh talking your way out of uh, dangerous situations, um, de-escalating um, violence or, or possible violent confrontations. So, you know, that's just uh, one example where, you know, these players are formed like that. We've So we've got uh, two clerics, as I've said. We've got a, a mage who is extremely weak and has a poor constitution. I believe he has a strength of four. And a constitution of uh, eight for a minus one on hit points of already low one d four hit dice, but um, he has a good intelligence, and uh, he, this is being played by Tristan, um, who who um, I play with online with um, various games like Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay. He he's got a few ideas um, that he wants to do this. Do we really need spell books and stuff? He's trying to push. He's trying to push my buttons. He's trying to push the limits, and I'm, I'm willing to uh, make certain concessions, provided that it's still within the spirit of the game. Because after all, we're not playing shogi, as I've mentioned last time. We're playing chess. Um, but for example, if he wished to, instead of having a, a spell book, perhaps he, uh, 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 perhaps the way he learns his spells, and he still have to do things like research and so on. Perhaps the way he learns his spells or um, is 
different from other people through songs or hearing songs from birds or something like that, I think he was suggesting. Um, but he needs to be able to record them somewhere because we still need that limitation that the spell book is something that must be carried. It can be lost. Um, it can be left somewhere. It can be taken away. So it has to be a physical thing that can be destroyed as well, which is a, is a limiting, a restrictive factor on all magic users. Without it, he's being kind of given... Um, it's a new class, really, isn't it? It's not a magic user at all. It's not a, a cleric. It's kind of like a cleric, clerical magic user with all the highest-powered spells, but none of the restrictions of the um, base class. Um, so, yeah, perhaps he wants tattoos and he has to remember the spells. He has to recall the spells from reading his tattoos. And naturally, um, if he's captured by the enemy, they might want to remove those uh, tattoos, which could be quite painful. Um, I'd be willing to do that, yeah. Um, also, I'd be willing to for him to etch it on a staff, little runes etched on a staff or something a little bit unusual. Um the the exact uh, cosmetics um special effects if you like of, of the way that the spell is is cast isn't quite so important as that the base basic kind of um rules the principles of the game hold i think here so um two clerics <laughs> as usual i'm getting lost two clerics um, a magic user, weak magic user, uh, typical anemic magic user. A, a, an elf, um, which is just the class elf, you know, which is essentially a magic user fighter. It takes a very long time to advance, but is a very powerful class. We have a dwarf, um, and we also, which is a, again, is. Most of the demi-humans are like fighters with some special abilities. And we have a halfling. Um, and uh, we've ruled that the halfling bonus on initiative is, is or on individual initiative, is going to be used for the whole party initiative, as we are using party initiative in this game. We'll, we'll chalk it off as, as um, halfling's luck and have only one halfling bonus and that's kind of like a a fun um a really well a really useful ability for the halfling which is often overlooked as a player character class for me, by many people um but is an interesting class because of its hiding skills and ability to wear and use most ar well wear heavy armor plate armor um and uh, most weapons so uh, elf thief, uh, sorry, elf, elf, dwarf, halfling. So all all three demi-human races are in the game. Um, we have a thief as well. And in fact, the only character we don't have is a fighter, which is it's kind of a little bit sad because I do think the fighter is um is really good. Uh, it's a very good class. Um, presumably decision was made by the players that well why have a fighter if you can be a dwarf which has all these underground um skills that are at their disposal but we'll see you know that's the general setup um 
after oh, the hit points, this is how I did hit points. I basically didn't, uh, I, I wasn't um, easy on them, but I wasn't too harsh either. Um, basically, everybody rolled uh, their hit die and they were given half rounded up. Um, that's the mean number. So if it's a D4, that would be 2.5. So I'd round that up to a three. So if they roll less than a three, they get three. Um, so uh, that's uh, for a, basically for a magic user or a thief, that's a three or four hit points plus any uh, constitution bonus. The other classes work similarly. So a fighter or a dwarf gets a D8 hit die. And I ruled that's a 4.5, that's a 5. So if they roll anything lower than a 5, they get a 5. And it's modified by constitution bonus if they have one. And that um, is pretty much it. Uh, the rest was, you know, all by the book. Uh, the, the hit points are there just to ensure that they've, they're not going to get, like, killed by a, a really strong wind. <laughs> you know, a rock that gets thrown their way or dislodged, small small stone that gets dislodged um, from the, the top of the barrow ceiling accidentally and lands on their head, you know. We don't want that happening. So for, just for the first level, yeah, just um, average, average or higher hit points, I thought was um, a good place to start. And then from second level onwards, whatever you roll is your hit points. And this is something I always do with... D&D now, um, I do this in Swords and Wizardry, I really think that keeping that, that random hit point is really important um, because it, 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 sets, um, it sets realistic bounds on the game. Um, it stops people always pushing for high numbers. Um, and they, they, they're always going to generally going to settle towards this mean number of hit points, but not always, right? But on average, they will because of the, you know, bell curves and so on. And I think um, it's fun to see the dice coming up. Uh, and it's challenging to to not have um, way above average hit points or maximum hit points, which is what you often see in this game. Uh, that, that, that average hit points that really brings people, it keeps the power um, under control and stops parties from from um, just getting um, unkillable. It keeps the, the game much more interesting up into a later level, a slightly higher level than it would otherwise, as does obviously using 3d6 for ability scores. So that's the, uh, the, the setup. I, I haven't really mentioned much about the, the players other than their um, friends or friends of friends um, and they live across Japan, different parts of Japan or um, in the, two, two of them live in England, uh, one lives in the north of England one's in the well, mid south or Midlands I guess, Midlands almost and that is that so I hope that's, uh, that helps a little bit oh, um, finally, um, yes after I had sort of introduced the the town um, and they'd done a little bit of shopping and and sat down in the bar and got to know some of the 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 bar staff and the locals uh, the local miller who is this ranger figure and a guide to the moor uh, breaks in after the 
there's a, some commotion and the ringing of bells and, and calls them and, and says, won't anybody come and, and uh, help us? The, the walking, the dead are walking again, not far from the village. And so he rouses up there, um, or he tries to rouse up the people in the, the common room of the inn. And naturally the locals just don't really want to get involved with the tool, right? It's dangerous. People just want to lock up inside. But the party... You know they know they know what they're doing, right? This is they're not like no, we're not going out. What's in for us? No, they know what they're there for. They're out there to get adventures. So it's like um, there's a little bit of banter. There's a few kind of little bit of posing and stuff. It was just kind of fun, you know. People just um, immediately uh, leaping towards the um, very simple opportunity to to do what they're there to do, you know. Um, and that's the kind of simple game that I hope we can play for months ahead. So they went off there um, towards the statue of her and outside the village. And um, yeah, they fought some zombies. Um, they managed to turn an amazing number. Um, they're not in the um, barrows yet. So they, they you know, they, one of the um, players turned zombies and turned something like uh, 10 hit dice worth of zombies which were they encountered seven that was five zombies running off uh, and they defeated the other two so there's a defeat they defeated seven zombies they took um only the dwarf was hit with for three points of damage and that was the only uh, damage taken so that's roughly three days of of rest and that'll be healed up and uh, hopefully there'll be um, now in the good books of the town to some extent and the ranger and they'll be able to get a guide probably the ranger's son uh, eldest son will take them out to the barrow um, to the barrow maze next time we play which will be in two weeks time and we can well I'll just uh, show them the map and say which one do you want to go to first and they'll pick a, a barrow and uh walk in there if it's open already or break into it somehow or dig the way in and um, we'll start start learning some um, tactics and, and strategies that they they want to employ in this rather kind of unusually laid out dungeon or mega dungeon in fact so it's a, it's a very very simple setup a very simple um, group dynamic but the players are fantastic um, lots of interesting ideas um, and there's a lot of depth uh, possible in this game. So while things are very simple, I think there can be a lot of very, very interesting uh, situations and uh, developments from it. So that's good. That's, um, that's something to uh, look forward to for um, hopefully the next few months at least. And, and uh, who knows, hopefully much longer than that. With, you know, I do intend to keep it going, um, if at all possible. Hey Rob, Jason here. I'm interested to hear your thoughts on the Little Brown Books. So, as we know, once you take the Little Brown Books and the supplements, you have 90% of AD&D, and you were running AD&D earlier, so I'm curious to see your thoughts of OD&D compared to AD&D. AD&D just, of course, formalized some things and made it more of a competition kind of um, rule set. But, so, like, Swords and Wizardry Complete, 
is effectively OD&D with supplements, right? I mean, it's changed up some. They, you know, they forgot to add a few of the saving throws in there. But for the most part, that's what it is. So I'm curious your thoughts, because really, you can see AD&D, what became AD&D, and OD&D with supplements. So, although I am tempted to go the Bandit's Keep route, Daniel Norton's route, and um, Bandit Keep podcast, that is, and use Chainmail for the combat. But looking forward to your episode. Talk to you soon. That was, of course, Jason of Nerds RPG Variety Cast. Thank you very much for the call in, Jason. So I let the message there lie for a few days, but it was having all these uh, this effect on me. It was creating this chemical reaction in my in my brain, and um, I ended up trailing through uh, the Strategic Review, uh, the magazine that TSR put out in the years of uh, seventy five and seventy six to really promote their material. Um, because of course, because of course, uh, they were a, a new company. They had very little finance, and it was very difficult to get shops to sell their uh, game at first. And this was one way which they they you know they formulated to promote themselves and promote their their publications, which of course extended to games. Uh, a lot of games other than uh, Dungeons and Dragons, or in addition to Dungeons and Dragons. So uh, it's going to be a long kind of answer to your message. But uh, yeah, I am really interested in um, focusing on uh, the little brown books of 74 uh, original Dungeons and Dragons, as well as the supplements. And thinking how those that game and all its different pieces, including the pieces that we'll find, uh, I'll talk about from the strategic review, how that all fits together to form a game that could be reconstituted as advanced Dungeons and Dragons or even as Swords and Wizardry complete. Now, hmm, I'll let you decide. I'll maybe get back to this, but uh, everyone, uh, Jason included, have a little listen to this. As I was reading about uh, the original Dungeons and Dragons of 1974 and the supplements that appeared after that, you know, mainly 75 and 76, I started uh, to become aware that the the game that I was playing in Swords and Wizardry was very much an amalgamation of the 74 rules with the supplements, the namely the Greyhawk and Blackmoor supplements. But not only that, also the strategic review um, in-house magazines that were being uh, published by TSR back in 75 and 76. And uh, so I had a little look on the internet and uh, found that you could actually get hold of the strategic review. And what led me down this rabbit hole was actually the Ranger class, which doesn't appear in the rules at all. And I thought that was a bit odd. So I started to take a look, a closer look. And um, I tweeted a lot of these things this week as I was uh, examining the first few issues of the strategic review. Um, and not quite in order, but it, it, looking at the uh, magazine, uh, in-house magazine, in the order that it was printed, and I believe they referred to it as a zine back then. Um, it started in 1975, the spring of 1975 to be exact. 
And the first thing that I came across that was of interest to me, uh, this is not only uh, Dungeons & Dragons, Dungeons & Dragons rules, by the way, it, it includes other games, war games, uh, tactics, uh, boot hill, all, the, all, all sorts of things that they were getting involved in right in the early days. But the ones that took my, uh, you know, um, got my interest really were related to D&D, of course. And uh, this first one from the, uh, this one from the first uh, issue relates to the Mind Flayer. So here we have a, a key creature of D&D already appearing uh, and being used um, at least as far back as spring 1975. And it's the first, um, it's the first reference, as far as I can tell, to psionics, or at least the mind blast of the mind flayer. And I, I initially thought this was actually, it was going to go into further details, but it seems to be just the mind blast that it got into. So it's not quite psionics at this point. Um, the psionics really didn't appear until 1976 with Eldritch Wizardry, which I think was the, I think that's the fourth, it's the third, oh, third, third supplement of original Dungeons and Dragons. Um, but the thing, yeah, as I mentioned, the thing that really got me interested was the appearance of the Ranger class. Now, they had, uh, the, the original classes were simply the cleric, the fighter, um, or fighting man as it was originally known, and the magic user, and the thief didn't actually appear until Greyhawk supplement, which came out the next year. At the same time, as far as I'm aware, um, the Paladin, sorry, I don't have the books in front of me, and I'll be referring to these, I'll be looking at these books perhaps in more detail in episodes to come, but as far as I can tell, the Paladin appeared uh, in the Greyhawk supplement, along with the Thief and some other classes. And it, back then, you could actually become a Paladin um, uh, if you were a fighting man, if you were a fighter, so you... Uh, pr provided that you had that 17 charisma, I believe, you could actually take the oath and become a paladin, switch over to being a paladin, so which is a, an interesting ruling on the class. And it's also something that appears in the Swords and Wizardry rulebook, the complete, uh, Swords and Wizardry complete, excuse me. So, yeah, the ranger did not appear. Hmm. And it, but it did appear in the summer issue of 1975 of the Strategic Review. And it's very similar in appearance to what would eventually make it to the Advanced Dungeons & Dragons Player's Handbook of 1978. The rules are almost identical. Um, the, the XP um, increments are slightly different, but otherwise it's very, very similar indeed. So I thought that was really interesting that the class did not appear in any of the original Dungeons and Dragons supplements, but but did appear very shortly after the publication of the original rules, but only in the Strategic Review magazine. And that maybe got me got me thinking really about swords and swords and wizardry and what kind of rules we're looking at uh, there. The Souls of Wizardry 
is often referred to as a retro clone or similar title. But what it really is, to me anyway, is a a set of rules that very closely emulates original Dungeons and Dragons as supplemented by the Greyhawk and to some extent the the Blackmoor rules. Now it's not exactly the same um, and that's something I'll probably touch on later. There are uh, very definite uh, changes that have been made. Um, For the most part it's been powered down to some degree because some of these classes that came in with the supplements suddenly uh, increased the power of certain classes way over the um, the level that had been established with the original 74 rules and even with the new hit dice that were awarded and which are reflected in the swords and wizardry rules the original classes always seem to be a little bit pale in comparison to say the monk but uh, what I really want to talk about is just the the importance of this strategic rule in in creating D and D, the strategic review. Uh, its importance in creating D and D, but also its importance uh, as an element within Swords and Wizardry's uh, complete rules. So let's see now. Um, lost me, lost, lost my train of thought. But yeah, I, I was looking through and you have uh, more and more monsters appearing in the strategic review. So I got to the third. I'm looking, you can hear me flipping through now. I got to the third uh, issue. The second issue is actually, as I mentioned, obviously it has got the ranger class. So it's it's such a notable um, addition to the rules because the, the ranger is considered one of the, you know, the, the core classes nowadays. But it wasn't originally in the rules at all. Um, The Roper also makes an appearance in this second issue, along with uh, an interesting um, review of the pole arms, pole arms by Gary Gygax. Um, And he's added some rules for chainmail to more closely simulate the, the features, I suppose, the characteristics of pole arms and how important they really were in medieval war um medieval combat and uh, war hmm. but <clears throat> the thing that um grasps the attention of secrets of blackmore um on twitter which is the this is a uh, griff who created or is one of the people behind creating the secrets of blackmore movie about the development of role playing and Dungeons and Dragons. And he, he rightly pointed out the importance of this uh, issue because right in the top left-hand corner, it reads, In memoriam, this itch issue is dedicated to the memory of Donald R. K., co-founder of Tactical Studies Rules, longtime friend and fellow war gamer. Don was born 27th June 1938, and died the 31st of January 1975. We deeply mourn his parting. Now this is really historic, really, uh, because Don Kay was uh, one of the, the key, the founder was the founding member, along with Gary Gygax, of TSR. And he's one of the guys that put a lot of money up front to get those initial 
what is it, two, three hundred copies of, of, of um, the Dungeons and Dragon rules printed. Remember, these guys had no company. They had Gary didn't even have a proper job anymore. Um, they were really sort of um, scraping the barrel as far as uh, economically, but but Gary had a lot of friends and a lot of clout, and um, together with a few uh, close associates. Um, they brought the money together to get the thing published, the rules published. And this is him. Uh, this is Don Kay, uh, so sadly, um, uh, dying just one year after the publication. Not even a year, actually. M within months, because I, th I think uh, original Dungeons and Dragons wasn't published until the end of 74, about October. Which means um, the guy has passed away... Um, in January, he, he he didn't even get to see what would happen to these rules. Um, I don't think he would have been uh, in any way disappointed. I think he would have been um, amazed at how quickly um, the Dungeons and Dragons hobby would become this huge role-playing um, industry and, and um, get to the proportions that we see today. But anyway, that that's that. Uh, after this, the beginnings of uh, various uh, problems arose with uh, relating to the ownership of TSR, uh, which would uh, eventually see Gary Gygax being pushed out of his own company in 1985. Anyway, I thought that was of some note. I don't want to go into too much detail, um, only to say that it's um, a, a fascinating read. Um, and one of the things I really like about this zine is that it's very much a, a magazine made by gamers. You know, this is a young company. It's only just become a company with, a, with loads of new games, loads of uh, energy. And they are just really belting them out they're belting out the games they're writing all these interesting rules the pages are in two column format they're very very clear easy to read the print is smallish in places but not too small the monster statistics when they appear for example in this third issue uh, which is autumn 75 We've got a whole bunch of new monsters, including the Yeti, the Shambling Mound, the Leprechaun, the Shrieker, the Ghost, the Naga, the Windwalker, which I've never heard of, uh, the Piercer, and the Lurker above. Um, and they're clear. Um, the statistics, in fact, are so different from what you would be familiar with um, if you know, well, even second edition AD&D. Uh, you can run. You could run these monsters just with the st statistics and the descriptions that you have. Uh, after that, there's a little bit in the same issue. There's a little bit of um, poking fun at certain types of players within the nascent role-playing hobby. We've got drolls instead of trolls, hobnoblins, were gamers, umpires, griferies, hip hippie griffs, and green granules. And uh, I guess these. This is a little. Somebody called Wesley D. Ives, which has got to be some kind of uh, anagram, is really having a poking fun at um, 
probably people that go to war game and role playing at uh, D&D um, conventions, I'd imagine, Gen Con and stuff like that. Uh, after that, it's got a load of stuff about uh, Napoleonics and uh, miniature battles and stuff, which is uh, really of a lot of interest, particularly if you're a, a war gamer. Um, and it's got some stuff on deserted cities and Mars, because, of course, the John Carter of Mars series was really important to these uh, old gamers, and they were developing their own game uh, about Barsoom. I'm not sure if it was out at this point. But anyway, uh, that's enough. I've talked your ear off. Uh, that's all I'm going to say this time. I might have a look at some of the other issues too, because they are really interesting. Uh, if you're a D and D, um, a gamer, if you're a, if you're interested in the weapons and the, the variety of weapons and the deal, the, the depth, excuse me, the depth of um, research that Gygax was uh, doing into pole arms and and medieval combat. Um, he really was a, a bit of a, a freak when it comes to um, looking up all these uh, statistics and facts and trying to get things right. You know, you know, he 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 does point out, and this is maybe something I really need to read. He, there's something here where he talks about D and D, is not a simulationist game. Um, and he says that. The point of the game is to be a game. In other words, it's supposed to to be exciting and fun. Um, and simulation, historical fact and all these things aren't really in, of any importance. And I'll try to pull, draw that one out. I'll have a look now, in fact, and maybe add, add it to this episode if, I, if it's short enough. Anyway, that's enough for this moment. Here we go. This is a different thing, actually. This is um, something I sh- really shouldn't have left out, but... Here it is in the first uh, issue, or that's spring 1975, and it's a special feature. And what it is, is a solo dungeon adventure generator. This is a, a method of generating um, basically corridors and rooms, chutes and stairways, tricks and traps, um, treasures and monsters, and, and what, whatever might... Uh, be within a some kind of dungeon, um, and it's very similar to a sort of simpler version, but still a very well laid out and looks quite useful. Um, bunch of tables. Uh, that yeah does look very similar to what would appear in the nineteen seventy nine Dungeons and Dragons, uh, Advanced Dungeons and Dragons Dungeon Master's Guide. Um, so it's quite an interesting little uh, find. The the uh, advice that Gary gives, and apparently it was pre- the preliminary testing of this was done by Robert Kuntz and Ernest Gygax uh, at the behest of Gary. And um, he suggests that, you know, when you're doing this stuff, if you know, if you're playing just a couple of people or just on your by your own, on your own, um, Keep these uh, dungeons, even keep a record of the dungeons. You know, he says save them. He's not talking about, uh, you know, on your computer. He's he's talking about keeping these little pictures and, and dungeon maps and things together and repurposing them at some later date for your group games. So it's quite a brilliant piece. Uh, two, two and a half pages long article on, on generating your own dungeons. Great, good stuff. Okay, here we go. I found it. 
So I think this bears reading out in full. Um, it's quite an interesting article. Um, yeah, see what you think. TSR, why do we do what we do? Editorial comment by Brian J. Bloom. Tactical Studies Rules is not a giant company. It is not even a large one. But we are growing now, and in the future we might attain substantial size. While we must make a profit in order to remain in business, TSR is not around solely to make money. The members of TSR are long-time gamers who have found that there is a great deal of satisfaction in creating and or publishing a good set of game rules or an enjoyable game. And please note that the emphasis is on the term gamers. Some attempt to downgrade the game aspect of our hobby and pretend to simulate reality. We, at TSR, believe that it is impossible to simulate real-life situations, although some of, its impo uh, some of the excitement excuse me, and challenge of reality can be reflected in a game. Although a game always remains a game. Thus, we try to publish rules and games which are easy to play, logical and still give some of the flavour of the particular era or battle or whatever whatever it is they they cover. This, of course, cannot apply to those fantasy or and science fiction uh, titles where reality is not usually relevant. In these cases, the stress is on providing a framework which excites and challenges the players as they develop their own games. The keynote in all of our publications has been flexibility, tempered with playability, and mixed with the proper amount of authenticity, so as to retain the sense of historical realism or game realism. We hope you will always find that we have succeeded. Of course, whatever TSR does is meaningless without your support. We must know if we are providing what you, our fellow hobbyists, really like and want. Sales reports tell us that so far we have been coming pretty close to the mark, but we also welcome your letters telling us what rules or games you would like TSR to produce. Just to make it easier, we have included a short section listing a few possibilities, and if you see something you like or find we have missed your favourite, drop us a line and give us the word. In a nutshell, we do not believe that we can ever work too closely with our fellow wargamers. For TSR's sole justification for its existence is to provide you with products which you desire. When I mentioned that the members of TSR were long-time gamers, I was speaking of a combined total of about 50 years for the three of us. That is 50 years of battle gaming, for if chess were to be included, it would be more like 75 years. Such experience, even considering our past design work in addition to it, is not sufficient to make us in any way independent of the hobby. We will always attempt to keep in touch with you as closely as possible. We know that we need your support, not vice versa. Thanks for the confidence you have shown so far. So I think that's a really fascinating um, manifesto, I guess, uh, from old ga old time uh, gamer and friend Brian Bloom. And um, that energy. Uh, and that focus on we are gamers making games for you know like-minded people is really what drove 
TSR and D&D in the early days to the success uh, that it would become. And uh, I think there's a lot there that can be learnt um, today by other people in the uh, industry. A lot of people really uh, seem to begrudge Dungeons and Dragons its name and makers like Gary Gygax. And they also feel that items like this magazine, this zine that I'm holding here, the Strategic Review, TSR, are historical, uh, you know, of historical interest only. Um, They're really of no importance today. But of course, that idea that now, um, what is happening now and what's happening tomorrow is more important than what happened yesterday is, you know, um, not very useful. (laughs) How can we say? You can't learn. You can't know the future. Um, And you can't live today uh, without a, a firm grasp of the past. And so I think it's important to remember that TSR and Dungeons and Dragons started off as a as a independent game and label and a very small company um, that was financed by uh, fellow uh, hobby enthusiasts. And while the words here they talk it talks about war gaming, war gaming, you have to remember that the term role gaming or role playing game still hadn't been uh, really coined. It was still in develop in 75, 76, 77, but it would be developed within within these years to define um, or to differentiate, I guess, Dungeons and Dragons from from strict uh, role-playing games, (laughs) Uh, you know, uh, war games rather, sorry, Um, from war games, because, I mean, obviously playing one character and the scope that that allows is very different from moving an army around a board. So um, that's all I wanted to share. That's more than enough, uh, as I always say. Um, but who knows, maybe something else will get uh, added on to the end of all these addendums. Well, thank you to Jason for the, for the call-in. And of course to you, the listeners, who, you know, make uh, all the difference it's nice to have people listening not to listen to my voice for the sake of listening to the voice but to know that the recordings that I make which are you know a a diary if you like or a, a log of my explorations of this hobby the bits of the hobby that fascinate me fascinate me at this time um is also of some interest to others um and as you can see, I found another rabbit hole. And it's quite fascinating. It really is so fascinating because you're told that things um, get more complicated as you go further back. And to an extent, that is true. But I think if you understand enough about the uh, the basics of Dungeons & Dragons, say you've read the basic basic Dungeons and Dragons rules, you know, uh, of the Holmes set or or Moldvay or or um Menser of was that 77, 1981 or 83. Those sets are the sim- simplest 
form of D&D you could possibly imagine. If you can understand, if you've read those sets and worked through the examples, perhaps you might have played the, the solo adventures there. Uh, and that was your first step on learning the rules of D&D and how it should be played. Uh, I mean, should I say, I, I, that's not prescriptivist, that's just uh, how to play. Then, then you can understand OD&D. And in fact, probably uh, AD&D is a lot more complicated, um, if only because the rules are so opaque. Um, they're explanations of explanation. And much like my log here, my um, podcasts often jump around because I've not scripted them. As so does, uh, in the same manner, so does Gary Gygax often jump from one thing to another. And I think it's because there's this assumption that everybody knows how to play D&D, at least the basic game. That Advanced Dungeons and Dragons was exactly that. It was, it was the advanced rules format of the game. Um, if you look through the book, you'll see that there are many references in AD&D to OD&D supplements and other materials like chainmail. And actually, you really don't know, need those, that information or those references to help you understand the D&D rules in any way. But it goes to show that Gary, or at least Gary felt, or at least in his mind, the AD&D rules were something that was had progressed from Chainmail uh, through OD&D uh, and had been sufficiently introduced or reiterated uh, for beginners in the Holmes rules and later it would again in 1981. And he didn't feel it was necessary in AD&D to explain the dice and what the different dice were and what role playing was. That was not necessary. What you get in AD&D is the materials and the tables that you need to play the game in um, in a manner that 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 would satisfy gamers who'd already been playing the game for some time, and for the rest of us who didn't grow up in that some time before AD and D, we learned the game through through schools, through through um, relate, relating or through gaming with with others of our age uh, and people older than us. Um, and we, that, that sense of passing it along, passing the game around, teaching people was really important. We didn't learn it from the internet. There was no internet. We, we learned it through, through interacting with other shy people, um, other people who perhaps felt more of an, uh, more of a, an, an affinity to imaginative uh, pursuits or games, gaming pursuits than they did with uh, playing sports or, or going out uh, to discos or whatever, you know. Of course, we were too young to go out to discos when we found D&D, &D, but there you go. So um, 
I do hope to look further into OD&D um, and to examine how the rules of OD&D and the related um, uh, magazines and so on, that culture that was alive, the gaming culture that was alive, um, finds one manifestation, if you like, in Swords and Wizardry complete rules. Because although Swords and Wizardry is very similar to AD&D in some ways, it's a lot closer to 74 D&D or 75 D&D or an amalgamation of the two, plus a few magazines uh, like the Strategic Review. And of course, I'm referring here partly to the maximum minus one plus one bonus for most stats, with the exception for strength, of course, as fights get a little little bit of tweak in there. But all right, I've, I've spoken enough. Um, if you if you haven't had enough of me, I'll probably uh, come back in in uh, due course and talk a little bit about those uh, little brown books or something. Uh, and there'll be some more games going on. We just finished our DCC game. Uh, and I'm not ready to sort of discuss that at this time. I wasn't GMing, by the way. I was playing with some friends. Uh, it, it was very interesting. All these different uh, forms of D&D, all these different faces, um, incarnations of the same game. It's very interesting. Uh, in due course, I will also be playing third edition, as I believe I mentioned earlier. But uh, there's time to talk about that later. So I wish you all the best. Stay well. Uh, stay mentally fit and take care until next time goodbye